0: hello and welcome to another edition of humanitarian ai today a podcast series produced by the humanitarian ai meetup.com groups in cambridge san francisco new york city toronto montreal london paris berlin geneva zurich bangalore and tokyo today we are going to interview a very special guest joining us all the way from bogota welcome uh, sean fernandez garcia you're in Colombia, but I understand you're from Spain. It's great to have you. Just for our listeners, Sean is an expert in innovation technology and entrepreneurship for development, sustainability, and digital transformation. So great to have you here with us today. How are you?
1: I'm really good. I hope that everyone is, is well in, at home, keeping themselves healthy and safe. Yes, I'm Schwam. I'm originally from Spain, but I've been living in in the Americas for the last 12 years. I've lived in Chile, in Peru, Colombia, also in Washington DC. And currently I'm working as a freelance innovation consultant, especially focused on social innovation in these last years, but always interested in any kind of initiative that combines innovation, technology, entrepreneurship, and other weird stuff and weird things, right? So in the last 10 years, I've worked in the two largest multilateral banks here in Latin America, Inter-American Development Bank and CAF, always linked to this kind of experimental solutions to development problems. And on top of that, I'm a researcher affiliated to Innovation Center by the Universidad Politécnica Madrid, a engineering school in Spain. And I also a responsible leader for the BMW Foundation. That is um, a group of leaders of different backgrounds, different origins, different nationalities. That sounds corny, but we are trying to do the the world a better place.
0: Nothing corny about that, Sean. Listening in, of course, is our wonderful Brent Phillips. Hi, Brent. Hopefully, we'll get to hear your voice. In this conversation so welcome both of you to um, the podcast today and sean you are specializing in innovation and um uh-huh. we were really keen to see what you know what are you finding is innovative or not innovative or intriguing to you and then we can dive deeper into your background but it'd be really great to hear some things that are occupying your thoughts You mentioned earlier, you wrote a really interesting paper, how the innovation principles of the innovation labs of aid for development institutes frame its activity Mm -hmm. and with what implications. So it would be really great to hear more about your paper and we'd love to hear more about your work and how you got interested in innovation work.
1: So many people get in touch with me to know how to go to work in Latin America or how to work in multilateral development institutions. But the truth is, I got here by chance. I've never been interested in in development or I've never been interested, you know, in Latin America particularly. Um, How do I end up here? Well, I wanted to learn English, so I enrolled in in a program to work in Spanish Chamber of Commerce's around the world promoting uh, Spanish exports. And my goal was going to the U.S. or Asia to improve my English. And they sent me to Chile, eventually. And from there, I fell in love with the region, in a way, and I ended up here. And I also um, entered in in the Inter-American Development Bank through another scholarship, so another training program by my government. So it was by chance, in a way. I've been interested in technology for a long time. I'm really old now, I'm 40. So when I did my bachelor in in journalism, and my university was the first one in Spain that had the specialization of electronic journalism, right? And now that there are not, you know, hard copy papers in physical, that that sounds weird, but but it was like a new thing. And after that, I, I did some studies in computing, in computing systems administration and I work with um, trade unions of um, ICT companies in Galicia so I was interested in technology in a way but but I was not you know a super geek or something I just thought that it can be interesting when I started to work in development in first in Peru in the inter-american Development Bank I realized that traditional ways of doing development they normally don't work they normally are quite um they normally don't have a sustainability in time, they normally don't fix the problems. And at the end of the day, most of these organizations are public organizations that are quite conservative in many ways. So introducing technologies is something hard. When I started to work in Washington DC in the Inter-American Development Bank, I, I was lucky enough to collaborate with one of officer that created a, a small task force of social innovation. The problem that was that we didn't know at that time what social innovation was, but we, we started to try things, you know. Uh, we, we did projects with crowdfunding, uh, crowdsourcing, impact sourcing, big corporations, open innovation platforms to alleviate poverty, etc. Uh,
0: what year was this?
1: Uh, this was uh, 2013, 2014. So at that time, it started to appear a lot of hype. Around social innovation, social entrepreneurship, as a new topic. Of course, there was you know social entrepreneurship probably since nineteenth century or or twentieth century, like a federal credit union or you know uh, safety nets like a pension that was created by Bismarck that was social innovation at that time or microfinance, right? But but this new tag was new, and and what I was what I realized at that time is like. This started to be very important in this development context, but I didn't have any theoretical background, any theoretical underpinning to understand if some initiative was good or was bad, if it was pertinent or not, if it was relevant or not. So I thought that I should go to the university and and specialize myself, get expert knowledge. I took a look in several you know, programs in very prestigious universities, such as Stanford or Berkeley or ESADE, that is a business school in Spain. But the only thing that, that I found was MBAs with some kind of specialization in social entrepreneurship. So to me, that, that was not what I wanted. And I finally ended up in University of Sussex. That is a really good one in, in development. And also, they have a, a center that is pioneered in the study of science, technology and innovation, but from a social, economic and policy perspective, like more around the social implications of technology than the gadgets or, or the new trends, etc. And this kind of changed the way that I saw things at that time, because at that time I was quite obsessed with the new trend, with the new shining object, with the buzzwords, etc. But the, all these British super witty and boring people, uh, they taught me how to think in a deeper way and thinking in a more systemic way. So most of the academic research in, in the spirit of uh, Spru is very Schumpeterian. Schumpeter was an economist from Austria in the in the beginning on the 20th century, and he's the inventor of the disruption term. He's also the inventor of some wrong ideas about innovation as a long journey, like the entrepreneur as a hero. He thought afterwards, but the, but the key concept in, in Schumpeter, Schumpeter, I think, is more and more relevant now: is technology and society goes along together right, goes by hand, by hand. So it's a co-evolution. And the thing is like scientists, because of their curiosity, because of their thirst of knowledge, they learn new things, they create new things. But the key for humankind and for human society is to extract value from that. So the hardest part is not science or creating technology through science. Is how to get that technology and that science into create social value. Right.
0: And syncing so, that up on, a, on, on what level? Like what? Okay, sorry to interrupt. No, I'm just super, super enjoying listening to you. I'm listening in too. This is Brent. Do continue. And you wrote a paper at the time about that and the innovation principles. So please go on.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So my paper was my dissertation, and I was interested in doing something related to, with my work. At that time, I was already uh, working for CAF. CAF is the second largest multilateral development bank in Latin America. They also had kind of a lab, a very small one, for working with new uh, models to create development through innovative ways. So I was interested in, in doing some research that was relevant for my future working life. So what, what I decided to do was uh, kind of a research about these new innovation labs that pop up uh, in the multilateral organizations like UN agencies, World Bank, USAID, IDB, etc. And I focused my research in the innovation principles and the role of narratives. So it's half tragic, but I understood and I learned more from my thesis now, like three or four years afterwards, because I learn more about narratives, their importance or about the principles etc and so
0: the dots connect because of also your journalism, so I can see that picture and that mosaic really you know,
1: connecting up. That's great. So, yeah, yeah that's true. I, I was biased. I was biased with that. Um, and the thing is, like, I, I don't know if you are familiar with the work of Donella Meadows. She is one of the greatest systems thinkers. She's one of the creators of, of this uh, mindset, uh, you know, like how, how a system works. And she says that um, narratives are like the glue that articulate the action, right? And, I don't know if you have experience to work in large organizations, but you know, l- large organizations are incredibly messy, and are incredibly diverse, etc. So what drives action is not you know, the protocols or are not the formal rules, are more like the informal rules. And these informal rules are very embedded in narratives about what should be done, what is desirable, what is fair and what is not. And that's deter- determined by the, the narratives. So at that time, in 2015, 2014, several cooperation, international cooperation organizations, the Swedish Agency, USAID, UNDP, UNICEF, they all signed a, a document called the Principles of, of Innovation. And they were, I'm embarrassed to say that I don't remember well what were the principles, but they were quite basic, like, do no harm, be responsible, be open, etc. right? So what I wanted to really know was, okay, do these principles mean a real change in how these organizations are working or is this a continuity under the new hat? And why that question was important to me because as part of my training, I was told that Innovation one has a direction, so it's not neutral; it goes to a direction. And second, is is past dependent, right? So many successful organizations ended up dying because they were very good at, at the past, but they cannot stop doing what they do before. And and here it comes this Clayton Christensen concept of the the, the, the disruption and. And, and, and this entrepreneur that comes from a small niche, etc. So, I really want to know if this principle, these narratives, were really uh, demonstrating a, a change, a change in and a good understanding of the new possibilities that new technologies and new methodologies open to, to these organizations. My, my general conclusion it was like, Okay, uh, uh, these uh, labs, these innovation labs, I studied three cases, UNDP, USAID, and UNICEF. They were supposed to be protecting the space to protect innovation, to let it grow and scale, right? But in my view, they were protective spaces. W- why do I say this? Uh, in, in the last 10, 20 years, um development cooperation international aid was has been very criticized right sometimes fairly criticized sometimes unfairly criticized the main criticism is okay there is still a lot of poverty in the countries that did best like china or chile they didn't use aid to overcome poverty so why are we spending the money on this this is one factor and the other factor is like, there are new actors in the um, development arena. Like for instance, Bill Gates Foundation, Pierre Media Foundation, Jeff Scott Foundation, and so on. So all these new donors, new philanthropists, they are bringing technology and a startup mindset. And as Silicon Valley business model became more and more popular and more and more mainstream, you know, in a way, my sensation was like many organizations, not just these development cooperation institutions, but many organizations try to take this this protective shield, this narrative that say, hey, look, we, we changed. Now we are like Google, you know, and we have ping pong uh, tables and we have all these cool things, et cetera. But in fact, what my research, I think it show is like, these initiatives were created by entrepreneurs in the organizations, and the initiatives follow the trajectory of the units that they used to be. So, for instance, Chris Fabian created UNICEF Innovation with another colleague, and he was a very Silicon Valley frontier technology guy. So, he introduced all these concepts in UNICEF, right? But if you look to UNDP, that made an amazing investment in 60 innovation labs in this year, in in 60 different countries. They came from the knowledge and capabilities part of the UNDP. So the orientation is creating capabilities in government. In USAID, the US government normally is more friendly to private sector development, so the orientation was really very startup, you know, private capital, venture capital, etc. oriented. So this, this this, to me says a lot about that. It's a way of continuity, you know. Uh, Lam Pritchett, there is a, a professor in Harvard, says like organizations work in um, through mimicry. You know, like if there is this organization that creates a, successful diversity uh, department, another organization is gonna copy it and another, and another, and another, etc. Right? So all the large organizations copy themselves and it's a way of evolving. But the problem is when you copy the form, but you don't copy the, the function, you know? So if you are gonna have a new, for instance, diversity department, the goal is to create a more diverse organization. But if you create a diverse department to say, you know, I'm working on this, this can have the the opposite effect. So in my view, there is this risk, and it's a very real risk, that if you have innovation labs, and someone asks you, okay, how this organization is changing, how it's incorporating new ideas, etc., you say, okay, I have an innovation lab. And the rest can be business as usual, you know? So let these weird guys have you know their ping pong tables and their sushi buffet restaurants and whatever that, and deposits, here I have deposits, that is the, the key language in, in innovation. So just have this corner and let the rest of the organization do business as usual. And I think yeah, that's, the, that's well, the real danger, you know? Yeah, that's
0: not the bottom line. So. It's a culture, so the narrative moves into a big culture shift. And looking at things with your lens, where you've been Washington, D.C., Spain, the U.K., you're in Bogota now. Is there a narrative that kind of transcends everything that's universal, or do you find that local interpretation and culture plays a part? Because the needs are different, maybe. The problems are different, and the context is different. Anyway,
1: we're going off script here. I'm just... That's interesting. When I was living in in Washington and when I was living in Peru and I was already working in IDB Lab, I realized how backwards was the social innovation, social entrepreneurship Spanish ecosystem was, right? So many concepts like impact investment, social entrepreneurship, they were... I knew for many people and for many traditional investors, Yes, after that, I realized that in Europe, we have all this social safety net and we have a more equal society, you know? So there was social innovation, but social innovation was quite focused on very specific problems. Like for instance, now, especially in countries like England, there, there is this big problem with loneliness like a social disease. Or what can you do with so many elderly people or rural areas are abandoned? So social innovation in Europe is about that because we have a good net of social social benefits in a good state that provides the basic needs for many of the citizens. When it comes to Latin America, most of the social entrepreneurs that that I know most of the most interesting they are really great. They are really great entrepreneurs, but they should, shouldn't assist in the way that the, the state or the private sector should be doing their labor without the need of someone having to, you know, create a new and different mod- model to attend very low-income population because everyone should be having, you know, good healthcare, access to a bank account, access to running water, etc. And maybe the difference in the US is like um, there was a big hype with gadgets and all this venture capitalist model of unicorns, because I think in many ways the success of certain companies, such as Amazon, such as Google, such as Facebook, it has had a very bad distortion effect in the mainstream of what people think that is a successful business, because for many people, successful business is a a business that grows out of control the fastest as is possible in order to create a monopoly. And that, you know, there can be historical moments when this can be even a good thing. But then society has to evolve and create more variety and diversity, you know, and not having all these monopolies. So to me, sometimes I feel like when these development organizations try to copy some of these models that are thought to get big, giant, digital monopolies, I think that, that there is a danger there. And on top of that, I there is a paradox that people don't realize. And the paradox is this, the more powerful and the quicker the technology is, the less important is. In which way? In the way that, as the technology is becoming more and more powerful, the only way of really making a positive difference is creating more social and human capabilities. Right now, we don't know how far we are gonna reach with artificial intelligence, with internet of things, etc. So the only, only way to survive this is if we have very strong societies where no one is behind, with very rough um, democratic principles, a population that, in general tends is very well educated, in which a high degree of consensus—that's what is going to make the difference. Not three or four geniuses with extraordinary capabilities in software design and billions of dollars. That, that that only can make things work. You know.
0: That's a great point. How would you advise a tech initiative to think about Latin America and how to help?
1: Let me give you an example uh, about a people from the U.S. That, that went to Latin America and is doing something great. Uh, his name is Matt Alexander. He is the founder of Sujo. So, in Colombia, we have been in a civil war for the last 60 years, and it is a common problem in all Latin America that many properties, houses, real estate, etc., they, they don't have a, a title; they are informal. And this is a huge problem for many people, but especially vulnerable people. In the case of of Colombia, we are the second country after Syria with more refugees, but most of our refugees, now we have Venezuelans, but most of our refugees are internal refugees that, you know, flee away from the civil war. So what Suyo does is to create titles and to facilitate the administrative process of these people. To obtain these titles, and with these titles, they can get a number of benefits, like from you know heritage or access to loans, etc. And this, to me, is very interesting because it really creates a change in the power balance, you know, because most of these people eh, they don't have access to good services based on technology to ameliorate their lives, right? So this is a very good example. And I think I I never asked him if if this is the reason, but sometimes a a foreigner can see and navigate better between these waters, you know? Because if you are are a grassroots activist, local people, local powers are going to have prejudices against you. So to me, an important thing is to really understand where are you working, who are you working for? So if you are working for... Poor families that live in the slums of Medellin or Bogotá that to me sounds amazing. But if you are going to just jump into the fintech scene, there is a lot of fintech buzz right now. And this is because local banks have not done enough for financial inclusion, you know. And my view is like many people who says, okay, I'm doing this very inclusive fintech initiative. What they are really doing is trying to replicate the extractive schemes that the, the traditional ones are doing, but, but in, in a digital way. And that makes me kind of sad. So if someone from the U.S. or from Europe or Japan or whatever wants to do is, you know, take advantage of their role as outsiders to change social re- relationships. So to me, well, when I analyze initiatives in terms of are they good, are they impactful, etc., when I start my career, I look a lot about, you know, increase their income in so many dollars, create so many jobs. But to me, it's not that the difference anymore. To me, the difference is, okay, does this initiative change the way that the system is working? Change the behavior of the actors, right? So for instance, I, I work a lot on, with informal white speakers, the people who take rubbish in the street and sell it for profit. And 15 years ago, this was really new, really new stuff. And these people were really attacked by the police. They were invisible, right? But after we did many interventions with NGOs, with local governments, etc., they elevated their status and they saw themselves as heroes because they were contributing our, our wealth or to to the to you know to the environment, etc. So something as simple as saying someone you know you are not a criminal, you are not you're not garbage. You, you work with garbage, but you're not garbage. You are extracting values of some, something that someone disposal, and that is great. So that kind of change is the one that, that I want to see. And at the end of the day, technology so far is managed by people. So you don't change the way that people think and the change that people organizes, You're not going to ameliorate things. You're are, you going to make a difference. So, so that would be my advice. Like, not focus on You know, I have this really good technical knowledge, but I try to get a deep understanding of the society and try to leverage the international connections, the fact of being an outsider, to change mentality, to change how the system works.
0: I was really fascinated by our earlier conversation. Mm -hmm. That might be a good segue into what you were just saying about interconnection and the complexities the risks of hyper sort of, you know, mm-hmm. what motivation are you seeing from your point of view coming out, let's say, of, of this whole COVID-19 pandemic? If you want to use that as an example, would that be mm-hmm. something you can talk about?
1: Well, you know, the thing about the pandemic is that we know that we don't know, right? So there is high uncertainty, right? So in a scenario of high uncertainty, unfortunately, we, we have to work Trial and error. And we, we saw a lot of, of this in the in the response, right? So at some point the World Health Organization said you shouldn't be wearing a mask because doctors and nurses need it. Now it's, it's mandatory, right? And this creates a lot of confusion, etc. So my general reflection is we went to the stream of a society obsessed and focused on efficiency how to get more from the results that, that we have. And the results, of course, can be money, but also time, also, you know, a society based on more and more and more. Traditional societies were not so focused on that. So this is a relatively new change of the last 70, 100 years. And I think that is terms of resilience, you know, and resilience and to create all these safety nets and safe space for people. And it's started here in, in Latin America. Uh, countries like Colombia and Argentina, they took really early measures to tackle the disease, and in my, in my opinion, at least, they did it well. The problem is when you have many people that work in the informal sector. Around 50, 60 people in Latin America work in the informal sector. And many of them, their savings are between $100 and $200. So these citizens cannot afford to be three or four months lockdown, and they cannot telework, right? And this is tragic because if they go out, they are going to contage themselves and others, right? And this does a lot to me, like streaming inequality has this result. At the end, you cannot escape for none the consequences or most of the deadliest virus of the last 50 or 60 years came from animal sources. And this is because of the destruction of the environment. So at the end, you have all these negative consequences. And the worst thing is that you cannot control a complex system. You can try, you know, to direct the direction, direct the direction of this system, but you cannot control the consequences. You, you don't know what is going to happen. So Maybe one specific answer to your question is a part of creating safe spaces, create these you know, spaces where you can find shelter. It would be a more experimental and trial and error approach to life, right? And try things, see yeah. if they work, mm-hmm. et cetera, right? Like...
0: And about inequality, I'd love to hear any views. I mean, I'm seeing across from education, kids going to schools online and and it looks absolutely clear that the impact that's had on lower income families, at least here in the U.S. and California, Mm -hmm. and I'm sure if you looked at other parts of the world, the higher income bracket families have not been impacted at all in education this whole disparity of inequality, I'm seeing that as the universal trend across absolutely everything. Even like Black Lives Matter, um, you're getting advocates saying, no, it's about inequality, uh, income inequality. It is not just, I mean, of course, I'm not downplaying that movement is extremely important. But the inequality of the world's kind of haves and have-nots, we're supposed to be in a world of more haves. Are you seeing that?
1: I would say that, you know, we we have good and bad news. Like the bad news are there are increasing technologies, increasingly exponential, etc. So if you happen to be one of these people that own these technologies, these algorithms, uh, these servers, these brands, etc., there are positive feedback loops that reinforce your power. And this is especially true in a hyper-connected society, you know, because 50 or 60 years ago, you can be the wealthiest man in France, but maybe now you are not going to be, if you have this algorithm, the the wealthiest man in France, but all the world, you know, and like less and less people get more and more power. And we have all these, you know, boxes and social pathways where... Few people go to Stanford, Princeton, Harvard, etc., But only these people go to the big hedge funds, etc. So I don't know if you are familiar with Village Capital. Village Capital is a very interesting organization from the U.S. that de- defends the democratization of entrepreneurship. And his founder, Rosberg, has a very interesting book called the Innovation Blind Spot. And he says 80% of the venture capital in the U.S. goes to just three states. California, Massachusetts, and New York. Of these three states, 80% goes to white people. Of these white people, 80% are men, and of these of these men, probably 50 or 60% went to Ivy League. And there are a lot of really good entrepreneurs. And we are talking about the U.S. We are not talking, you know, about Ethiopia or, or Nepal. And so these these networks, these global networks of the winner takes all has to be broken. And and we have a big problem with also with monopolies in in this kind of a structure, it has to be broken. The side of the good news is uh, one of the most important researchers of, of SPRU is a Venezuelan professor called Carlota Perez. And Carlota Perez talks about these long waves of innovation, right? So there are historical periods of 70, 80 years right? So in the middle of this period is when things things worse. So if you take the start of the electricity period or the automobile period, they, you know, fit more or less with the first world war, the second world war, extreme inequality. When the television or the radio is created, they were prone to propaganda, to excesses, et So we cannot know but we are probably living in this middle period of this wave, where some pioneers got their hands on a new technology. This technology is creating a lot of power, influence, etc. But society still doesn't know how to, you know, structure the laws, the institutions, their values, their education, etc. So I'm not optimist or pessimist by by nature, but I think that there is a big chance like maybe not the people of, of my generation, Generation X, but maybe millennials and said generation, they are going to get access to decision-making chairs. And from there, they are going to have a good understanding about what is internet, what is new technologies, what is a network society. And they can implement real change because at this point, the, the people that is ruling the world, they were raised by television, you know or and, and they were born in the sixties, in the seventies. so we live in a very different society now, but I guess like in five, ten, fifteen years, especially after them, this crisis. So what happens with the crisis is the crisis accelerates whatever ideas there is around, right So after the crisis of two thousand eight, neoliberalism, it was on on the top of their splendors but we're not gonna take it anymore so something different is gonna be i'm not saying it's gonna be all positive but i think in three four five years maybe we are gonna be some real change like for instance with technology monopolies and things like that that are really disrupting the world
0: kind of bigger than tech in a way and i think Mm -hmm. unpacking it is so deep and i i'm really You know, I think it's super inspiring. What are you optimistic about? What's inspiring you? And with tech having so much power, concentrated power, what can you hope for humanity? And what can you ask humanity to be thinking about?
1: Like the humankind general question, I could say like, please don't underestimate the capability of human beings, you know, of resilience and of moving forward. In the 1970s, the MIT published a, a work with the group of Rome saying the world is gonna end in 2015, I think, because China has this exponential growth, and the U.S. is gonna be the first superpower. So we are gonna die basically now. Thirty years forward, like China is the most successful country in getting people out of poverty. The Soviet Union it doesn't exist, any etc. there. So Don't underestimate ourselves. Many people don't know this, but 50,000 years ago, there was a giant explosion of a volcano in Indonesia and killed 90, 80% of the population. And we survived to that. So this is harder than coronavirus. And we didn't have spaceships and artificial intelligence. About the humanitarian sector, there is, of course, a lot to say. But to me, the most important things are the boring stuff. The burning stuff is what determines the outcomes of the humanitarian sector. So, for instance, it could be a revolution if we move from a project funding model to another funding that can be more organic, more evolutionary, less administrative oriented, right? Because nowadays, all our system is based on the idea that we know what is going to happen with these people, how we are going to help it when they need. And this is completely wrong. So changing that it would be key. and, if we, and you have to start with something specific for the humanitarian sector could be the procurement system. So if you think about that in the procurement system, you are uh, buying something, an object, a service. but actually what do you want to buy is a result, you know? So if I, I told you, you know Brent. Uh, I I want to have a great vacation, and you you bring me, okay, you you, you have a a ticket to Rome here. I hate the Italians. I don't care. I have budget for this. Everyone loves Italy. So what you should have is a more open system, more adaptable, and more revolutionary system to change this. And another boring thing, indicators. Now, indicators Are basically now process indicators. Like I did the training for these poor people in Indonesia. It's useful for them. I have no idea. Or they they increase their income for $200. Okay. Do they have running water? No. What are they using the money for? In booths? In mobile phones? I don't know. So to meet the indicators to change and change to system indicators in the way like, people used to behave this way, and now behave this other way. People normally threw their waste to the ocean, and now they fish in the ocean. How do you get to that kind of system change, system behavior indicator is not important. The important here is like, you come from a point A to point B and you see the change. So there are like 40 movies of James Bond, right? And, and it's always going to be the same. This one is going to have a mission, it's going to accomplish it. So the how is interesting, but at the end of the day, you know that that is going to be happening, you know? So change the focus on the things and, and they are boring. It is much better to work in these narratives, in these narratives of, you know, now we are working in artificial intelligence, satellite imagery, big data, whatever you want to call it. But if you go to a document of a project in 1950s, they will be talking about the Green Revolution. Or if you go in the 80s, they will be talking about computers in the 90s of internet. So the important thing is how change the the lives. And, and just the, the last point, coming back to my paper, narratives. John Foundation is a very interesting uh, social innovation organization from the UK. And they work in deep listening processes. Right? So probably in a normal project, 5% of the time of the officers is used to listen to the people that they're going to help. So they want, wanted to change that. And one of the things that they wanted to discover were the narrative. So for instance, they, they were working in, in Wales in ways that there, there is this old coal uh, mining zones that are really de- industrialized, very depressed areas. And the teachers were saying to the best and the brightest students, look, if you don't st- study hard enough, you're gonna get stuck in this town. So the European Union and the UK government was investing a ton of money in changing the dynamics and creating prosperity in this town but the people who live there thought, you cannot get stuck in this shit hole. So if you, you don't change that that narrative, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter if all the parking systems have blockchain. It doesn't matter. How people think This is what matters.
0: So, Sean, this has been super inspiring. And thank you so, so much for everything thank you're you.
1: sharing.
0: Thank you. In terms of what you're doing right now, is there anything you'd like to maybe ask our humanitarian AI community for help with? Or is there anything you need as a takeaway? We're coming to a close. So I'm sure everybody's like at the edge of their seats listening as we have been. And they're probably keen to sort of like get to know you. and.
1: No, mostly I want to thank you for having this kind of conversations. Um, I think they are, they are important. So from my side, I'm working uh, as an independent consultant uh, at the moment in different topics. So for instance, I'm, I'm collaborating with a social circus about how to integrate Venezuelan migrants in Lima. I also working with um, a social company that is called especialisterne What they do is taking the traits of autism like for instance, attention to details, uh, persistence, and honesty, and they transform these traits in skills for the ICT sector. So they offer the services for Silicon Valley companies and SAP, IBM, large banks, etc., and helping them to develop their market. I also working with a company called Inclusion. They are the largest portal of employment for people with disabilities. They are in in seven countries. We are trying to, how to facilitate the access of um, Venezuelan migrants with disabilities to jobs. And also how can we facilitate in this context of COVID-19 that people with disabilities can work in platforms like Uber or Uber Eats, uh, for instance. And I would say like in general terms, like I'm open to the community both for having a good chat I think this is important, and serendipity is one of the most powerful powers in the world, most powerful forces, so I I believe a lot on that, and I I also believe a lot on, you know, in giving, like many people who who are curious about what I do or want to work in in the institutions that I used to work for, my door is always open for them, and in terms of, you know, of my business, or my activities, happy to help. Any organization from anywhere, any point in the world that wants, you know, or to bring what they do and the knowledge here to Latin America or learning about what has been doing here in Latin America or, or in Spain or in the many parts that I work in, always happy to help.
0: Thanks so much. Well, this has been amazing. Shuan, Fernandez-Garcia, thanks for being here and sharing your insights. And that brings to this you of humanitarian AI today to a close.